This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Ketan Anjaria. Ketan Anjaria is the founder of Higher Club, a career coaching platform and community. Ketan loves helping people succeed in their careers, and Higher Club has raised salaries for their clients by over $2 million. They have career coaching at all career levels. Ketan's expertise lies in using social networks to get hired. In the dynamics of hiring in Silicon Valley, and the importance of building diverse and equitable teams in the workforce. Hi, Ketan. Hi, Deb. How are you doing? Let's start off by giving our listeners a little background. What is Hire Club? Hire Club is a career coaching platform and community. What we do is we help you succeed in your career by one of two things, either helping you with personal growth with coaching or helping you with community growth by connecting you to other people looking for jobs or people hiring. I'm just very curious because you're the founder of Higher Club and clearly there was a need for this in the Bay Area. I see that there are thousands of people who now belong to this community. What led you to start Higher Club? What gap or problem in hiring were you trying to solve? I actually started Higher Club as a Facebook group way back in 2011 and I was running a design agency and we had clients like Microsoft, Adobe, Twitter, uh, Yammer, etc. And I always needed to find great people to hire. And I realized a lot of my friends were either looking for work or had people that they knew. And so we started this Facebook group with 25 of my friends and we had a few simple rules that are still our rules to this day. The first rule of Hire Club being don't talk about Hire Club. But secondly, you know, vouch for your friends. And what that started with is that very first week, people were posting jobs. And that first day we had a first interview, someone saying, Hey, I'd like to interview someone for a job. And that very first week we had our first hire. And you know, the real gap or problem in hiring is to me, both time and access. Companies want to hire fast. People want to get hired fast, but the access that people have to companies and the access that companies have to people aren't necessarily so smooth. And we kind of removed all the middle layers and said, why don't we just connect to directly as fast as possible to the actual hiring manager involved rather than intermediaries of like a hiring site or uploading your resume. It was all about making personal referrals. And I want to ask you, I guess, a problem to follow up on that, because I think that the personal referrals point is such an essential component. And I want to ask you to help me think through a problem that I see in hiring from the perspective of someone in what has been called the ivory tower, which is where I live, a place that many see as out of touch with the real world, right? We, we train students to enter the job market and hopefully we provide the industry and nonprofits and civic service that they're going to go into with the needed skills that are going to help them succeed and accomplish the tasks that they're set out to do and get hired. And many of our students spend a lot of money and dedicate time to get these degrees because they want to get the good jobs. They want to get the skills that are going to allow them to get the good jobs. We want them to get those jobs. But as many of them and as many of us know, and as I think that Higher Club really understands, it's really hard to get that first job. 
because you don't have the networks yet and you don't have the introductions and you don't have the access. Why is getting that first job so hard? And what can we or what should we be doing in colleges, especially in the humanities, where there's no direct outlet from training to the job market? What, what could we be doing better? You're right. It's, it, re- it really is hard to get that very first job. And I actually see it as a problem with education. I always say the skills to do a job are very different than the skills to get a job. And in fact, entirely different skill sets. So you can be great at math, you can be great at literature, you can be great at science. That's not the same thing as saying, I know how to market myself correctly and in a way that people can understand my value so I can get hired in an organization, right? So first and foremost, I think there's, it's really hard because people don't know the skills and they aren't taught the skills, right? Which is how to write a resume, how to do executed job search, how do you know what values you would bring to a company? How to talk about yourself in a way that's that balance of you know bragging versus being humble, right? Because you are looking for people who are successful, but you don't want to sound like you're bragging. And that's a tough thing that a lot of people have. And also, how do I even talk about the successes I've had, especially when I'm still younger and I'm still getting out to prove myself, right? Aptitude versus experience, right? The second part, yeah, there is a lot of systemic and unfortunately software-oriented processes that get really in the way of hiring, right? We often see, I'm sure all of this have gone to the upteenth form of upload your resume and then fill out this job application. And we often do the same thing again. And those often become busy work. And it often feels like the task of looking for a job is what we should do by applying for jobs. But what most people don't know is actually the worst thing they do is apply for jobs. Only 15% of hires happen through job boards. 70% of hiring happens through referrals. So what what we're also not teaching people is how to build your network, how to create a person that people want to connect to and how to kind of connect others as well, because it's got to be both ways, right? It's got to be reciprocal. And so I think the other skill is how to network. And so really it's a skills-based thing. You know, you can learn these skills, you can get better at these skills, but often we've gotten a lot of feedback from both college students and graduates that, their career counselors did not teach them what what we teach in the higher club. I mean, this is vitally important what you're saying, and I think so deeply misunderstood by people who are looking for their first job sometimes. And that is just to state it very clearly that sometimes skills and smarts are less important to getting that job than networks and connections. So why are networks and connections so vital? What do they do? What do they provide? Ultimately, one of the most important things in hiring is trust. I am trusting you that you know this skill and you're trusting me that I'll pay you for that skill. Both sides have to have trust, right? Now, often there's imbalances in that trust. And this is where the question is, how do you trust a stranger, right? In general, not even in hiring, but how do you trust a stranger, right? Now, what often happens is what I call affinity. So you went to the same college that creates affinity. You know someone in common. So that's through the transitive effect that creates affinity, right? And an affinity is a really easy way to build trust. And often one of the best affinities is, hey, you've worked with me before, I would like to hire you again. Or unfortunately, sometimes we also see pattern matching. You went to this school, generally I know candidates from this school being great candidates, so then I trust you a little bit more, right? What I call is pedigree, right? If you went to a Stanford or a Yale, you worked at a big company like Apple or Facebook in the past, that pedigree often can be creating that trust. So why networks and connections are super important is trust is the language of business. Nothing happens without trust. And what you're doing in creating those networks and connections is saying, hey, you can trust me. 
right? We already have a trust outside of work and it'll only grow through my work effort. And that's why they're so important. And that's why often hiring happens through that because hiring someone is an expensive proposition and hiring the wrong person is an even more expensive proposition and it takes time. And so companies tend to be a little bit more fearful or careful about who they're hiring because they want to spend that money. And for yourself, that's actually a good thing that they're doing that. I mean, they want to hire the right people. So it's in your benefit to say, the skill set I want to grow is how do I connect to people and help them, which then helps me, right? It's, it's, it's a very reciprocal kind of pay it forward methodology. People talk about the good old boys club in a negative way, and it is very negative, right? It's a very negative thing. But one of the functions of the good old boys club is we're going to help each other. And that actually has to exist in all communities, right? And this is how we create those networks and connections. And what's really amazing is, is what we're trying to do with Hire Club is to say, everyone can be part of that club. Everyone can say, hey, here's what I know, or here's who I know. And it's often, we also see this, this is true in dating, this is true in relationships, it's true in hiring. It's our second party or third party connections where change happens. It's often hard to say that, hey, my friend is someone I can hire because my friend might not be looking for what I need. But my friend's friend is often exactly that. And I don't know all my friend's friend. And so that's why networking is really important because it helps create that second party or third party connection that grows that affinity, grows that trust and makes the hiring process so much faster. So help us understand this in the context of newly growing technologies that I think are built along the lines of the strategy that you have evoked here, which is that it's your friend's friend, right? And I think that one thing that Hire Club does that is so interesting, which is to hire the power of social media as a connective tissue that people can tap into, right? That's where you get to see your friend's friend and, and the connective tissue that people can draw from in order to widen the scope of these networks so that you get to your friend's friend's friend who has the skill and isn't looking for the job. Has social media or other forms of connective technology changed the nature of hiring specifically through these networks, but even more broadly than that? And if so, how? A hundred percent. So I often say the job search is not a single player game. Never was, right? In fact, one of the best things you could do before social media, when you talk about pounding the pavement, is going out there and meeting new people. Right? And that was a form of media or a form of socialization. And social media just kind of you know makes that faster and often wider, right? And so it's hugely important because essentially what you're talking about when you're hiring someone to create that trust is what is your personal brand? And you know with social media, whether it's Instagram, LinkedIn, Hire Club, other tools, you are talking about your personal brand, even podcasts, right? You're growing your personal brand. You're talking about what you believe in. And I'm not using personal brand in the sense of a marketing sense, but like, what do you believe in? What do you stand for? And do other people resonate with that? That's what I mean when I say personal brand. So why social media is super important because social media is probably one of the best branding tools ever invented. You can find someone's Instagram account and it could be about, let's say, corgis and you know exactly what their brand is, right? Now, the hard part is that's very hard to do with, with LinkedIn or resumes do is say, here's what I care about. And, and they do a good job of it. But often I would say hiring is almost just as much social as it is skills-based. You want to hire someone that you feel like would be great to work with. You're spending 40 hours or, or more, right? Per week, more than often you spend time with the people that you have at home. And so you want to work with people that you're going to get along with. And what social media often does is show what those personalities are like. And so I think Everyone should be taking advantage of social media as much as possible to put the word out there. 
I also think there's often, especially if you've lost your job, a sense of shame that you can't talk about job loss or you you shouldn't be out there pushing yourself, but it's the exact opposite. There's massive Twitter threads you'll see where someone says, hey, I lost my job, I'm a developer, I'm a designer, please retweet for reach. And these things will get 30, 40, 50, 100K likes because people naturally want to help each other out, right? It's a natural thing that often happens. Why? Why do people want to help other people out? Well, I believe that humans, in essence, are good people. And we often see ourselves in those people. There's no one I know that's never had a hard time being hired. Everyone's gone through that pain. And we know that job search is a deeply painful process. I've gone through it myself. It, is, it can lead people to depression. It can lead people to suicide. It can lead people to loss of money, loss of family. And I think as humans, we recognize that. And we also recognize that when people are striving for something, we want to help them. It's much easier to say, hey, that person's aiming for something. Let me help them versus not knowing if your friend is even looking for a job. You can't help them then. And so the benefit of social media and Hire Club and other networks is to say, one, it's totally great and okay to say you're looking for work. And two, sharing that message is actually vastly beneficial, right? Because that's how the news travels. And that's the great thing about social media because it can be viral and it can grow and other people can see it. Here's where things I think start to get tricky. And I think what you're saying is important insofar as social media and the tweet scenario that you just described allows people to extend their reach far beyond what you might call their station. But even in social media, what you see is that people tend to be friends with and even you know one, two connections extended from that tend to associate with people who are like them. And if networks and connections are so important, then those who have them are more likely to get jobs and their friends are more likely to get those jobs. But networks and connections are really not equal opportunity. Even those tweets are not equal opportunity. Those who have historic privilege and access are much more likely to have those networks in the first place and be in a situation where people are going to be more likely to connect them, at least more probably to the kinds of jobs that are, might say, high earning jobs or high station jobs or high mobility jobs. And if hiring relies on these networks and connections, then those who are already in a pipeline to power get to stay in power and then hire their friends or their connections. How can we strategize for diversity and inclusion in this context? I mean, you're absolutely right. We all know and we've probably all experienced, whether you're a brown person or a woman or LGBTQ or just different from the status quo, that often it feels like these networks are shut out to you. And that is very true. That happens, unfortunately, way too often. And that also goes back to trust because people often trust people who look like them who have a background. That's a, unfortunately, a very human set of biases that, that often will have a hard time overcoming. I don't think the tweets in, in Hire Club necessarily limit yourself to only those people who have those connections. Let's take it from the, the ground up. One, someone's got to have an internet connection. That already eliminates a vast portion of a lot of the world still, right? Even in America, there's people who still don't have great access, right? Two, someone has to be tech savvy in some ways to use some of these tools. That already eliminates some portion. So unfortunately, the hard part about equality and diversity and inclusion is that we will always leave some amount of people behind, okay? And that is because as a country, we're not investing in our education. We're not investing in our social safety nets, right? That has nothing to do with people's individual value. They're all people are valuable, but it's how do we take care of those people, right? And so 
What other countries often do is invest in education and invest in those skill sets and invest in those communities. So not everyone feels that. Now, unfortunately, in America, we have this bootstraps, you know, kind of methodology, like pull yourself up, up by these magical bootstraps, and we highly value individualism. And there's nothing wrong with that. That has its own benefits, right? Innovation and invention all come from a lot of individualistic tendencies, right? But they can also work in social structures. So I think when you're looking at combating privilege and combating access, open networks like Twitter, open networks, and I arguably even LinkedIn, can be really powerful in a higher club because anyone can join those networks. Is it going to be viewed the same way? Yes. When my friend of a friend posts is very different than some stranger posting. What we try to do in higher club, and I strongly believe in it, is all people have value and everyone has equal value. I'm not big on celebrities. I'm not big on this notion that certain people are inherently better than others. I don't, I don't believe in that at all. I do believe some people have gotten more access or more training, right? And that creates a lot of exclusion that happens. The inclusion has to start from day one. And we all start to have to viewing that everyone has the same ability to succeed. It's not even about your network. It's that do we actually believe that? And unfortunately there is, even all humans tend to believe that certain people with training are gonna be better than others. And we see that play itself out all the time. So there's a lot of things as humans that we have to do to, to fight diversity issues and exclusion issues because we have our own natural biases that come up. Now, when it comes to racism and gender, that's even a bigger issue, how that plays out. So I think there's a personal level of work that everyone has to do. I'm not free of that work. Nobody's free of that work. But then as a community, what really has to happen is to say, I believe everyone can do a great job. And this is actually, I think, what these tweets and these kind of messaging and how often does is say, yes, go shoot your shot. 100%, go shoot your shot. It's more important to say, I gave it a shot and I worked on the skills I had to work on to get there. You'd want to be careful in saying, in fighting systemic bias is like, you want to attack the system, but you also want to focus on what you can do personally. And that's a tough balancing rope. I'm not even always good at it, right? Ultimately, this is where coaching comes into play because you have to come from a well of what I would call perseverance. In fact, I think the most successful people are the people who never give up. I think they did a study of people who got grants and the people who got the grant very quickly and very easily actually over the long term ended up doing less well with their research than people who applied for grants and failed to get the grant and then had to reapply multiple times before they were successful. They found that overall in the long term, those groups of researchers actually had a higher research output. Yep, I 100% agree. When you have learned to push yourself up, falling down over and over again, you ultimately realize, yes, there are many sadly unfair things in life and hiring. It's not fair by any means, sadly, right? But how you treat yourself, how you view yourself, and how much you say, look, things are terrible out there. And like, during COVID, they definitely are, right? This is a very hard time for millions, if not billions of people, right? And you have to find that well of strength. You have to find the people who believe in you. You have to surround yourself with positivity and a growth mindset. There's a book called The Abundance Book, and abundance mindsets and scarcity mindsets. And I think often in times of crisis, humans go to a scarcity mindset. I, during COVID, have gone to a scarcity mindset very often, right? There's not enough love in the world. There's not enough money in the world. There's not enough food in the world. There's not enough health in the world, right? You start having the scarcity mindset. And unfortunately, 
that impacts you more, right? Now we're all mostly talking about the, the personal things you can do. There are systemic things we can address in, in a separate time, but ultimately it's how we choose to handle the adversity that we're given that often determines whether or not we'll even make it. I want to bring us back to this question of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And maybe before we go further down the line with this, I should back up and just ask you why we need to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion as a problem in hiring in the first place. In your experience working as a key figure in hiring, and specifically in Silicon Valley, which is a tech hub, what concerns you? What problems do you see in this context? And, and what's the lay of the land right now? What do you see happening in this terrain in the near future? I was thinking about this, and I think one of the biggest problems in hiring, and specifically in Silicon Valley, is the myth that Silicon Valley is a meritocracy. It's not. It is a land of access. It is a land of who you know, just like many other cultures are. And I think the problem is there tends to be this rose-colored glasses that we put on with technology and programming and, you know, the computer doesn't have any bias, et cetera, to think that merit is the reason these things often find success. And that's not always true. Sometimes it's just being in the right place at the right time or having the right person that you know. And so I think the first thing we need to do is dismantle the notion that Silicon Valley is based on merit. And the sooner we come to the realization of that, then I think we're going to have more understanding for how everyone experiences it. The other problem that I see is what ends up happening in Silicon Valley is we do what's called pattern matching. So you went to Stanford, you went to YC, you, you raise money, and the people start following these patterns. YC, we should just say, is Y Combinator, which is an accelerator for... Close your eyes and think of a programmer. What do you envision in your mind? For most people, you might be someone that looks like Mark Zuckerberg, but that is actually not the truth. Most programmers in the world don't look like Mark Zuckerberg. And I think what ends up happening is with this pattern matching, we're looking for people to fit the pattern, but we're not looking for people to help us find a success. And this is one of the biggest problems in both fundraising and hiring and Silicon Valley in general is this pattern matching. We think because X did Y in the future that we should hire them again, right? They can and, and this is one of the biggest problems. One of the biggest other problems is just specifically racism and bias. I truly believe America is deeply racist. We have a very racist president. And there's lots of issues around race as we're seeing in the last few months of the incredible BLM movements. Both racism and genderism are really ugly problems that we especially have in tech, right? Black people don't get seen in tech. Brown people don't get seen the same way in tech. Now, I'm in this interesting place because I'm what's called a model minority. I'm Indian by descent. And there's both a positive and negative that. Like, I have the stereotype that Indians tend to be nerdy and, and good at math. It's like a one of those weird stereotypes that's like positive in some ways. But still not great because not every Indian is that, right? But other cultures have different stereotypes. And these problems of the racial bias that is so kind of what America is based on in so many ways, companies work all the time. I think this year, Google now has less black people on staff than the year before. And so these hiring and diversity things often don't execute the way we want them to. We're starting to see now, there's hopefully more of a coming Jesus movement in the last few months based on everything that's been going on, that this is a serious problem. An extremely serious problem that black men and women have been talking about for years, that Latino men and women and the LGBT 
LGBT community has been talking about for years. That you don't see us. You don't see us equally. And this is both a social and systemic problem that we really have to address. And I think things like anti-racism workshops and anti-racism training and studies are important. But I also think companies have to realize that they are acting in these ways. And I think one of the biggest problems we see with bias in hiring is we're afraid to be viewed for our mistakes. There's notion that if you make a mistake, you should cover it up and not talk about it. But these biases, this racism, this sexism is deeply ingrained. And we can all admit and say, you know what? I made a mistake. I need to learn how to do better. And unfortunately, in our hits-driven environment, in our press-driven environment, in our Instagram, everything is perfect driven environment, mistakes are often a hard thing to admit. Right? And I admittedly have made tons of mistakes on, around many things around hiring myself. And so I think one of the key problems, along with combating systemic racism and bias, is to say, it's okay that you made a mistake. Now you have to do the work to make up for it. That is a big issue that I don't think is even talked about enough. Because let's be honest, none of these companies are doing a great job on diversity and inclusion. They're not, right? We know about the yellow ceiling, which is that Asian Americans often don't get the raises and positions that white Americans do. We know obviously about the diversity issues in hiring in, in large companies where often when they talk about the black employees, those are employees in like less uh, technical roles. Right. Same thing for women. Women can often be on customer support or marketing roles, but it's still, unfortunately, you don't see them in other roles. And there's not a pipeline problem. I think the last myth to talk about the problem of Silicon Valley is for a long time, these figures that we viewed, the Elon Musk of the world, the leaderships of the world, and hiring in general, would talk about there's a pipeline problem. There's not enough women in CS. There's not enough black people in CS. There 100% are. It's never been a pipeline problem. We just chose not to see them. Sure, as you know, as a, as a woman technology yourself, you've been out there doing the work. You know you're there, you know you're visible, but people are sometimes not to see it. And so that applies for so many different, you know, communities, whether you're, you're black or uh, Latina or, or whatever, that you don't get seen. That problem is something we have to recognize and say, okay, the pipeline is there. I need to do the work to find those people. Not those people need to come to me. Right. I have to create an environment where they're welcome to come to me. Right. Where they feel like, yes, you'll be embraced. You will be welcomed and we will do our best to make sure you feel at home versus then, oh, we just we just want to have a token diversity. hire. And I want to ask you to shift the frame on this a little bit because we've been talking about the part of your expertise that deals with diversity, equity, and inclusion in the context of hiring who gets those jobs. But I think that there's another important component that goes hand in hand with that, which is that the people who get the jobs are then in the position to leverage their perspective and their identity and their knowledge based on their experiences to change the culture and to change the products that come out of it. And I wanted to ask you, given your experience working as a key figure in hiring and specifically in Silicon Valley, from your experience, how does diversity and inclusion impact the culture of a company and the products that come out of that culture? How does a diverse team make a difference? First and foremost, I think a lot of people think diversity is something you can hire for afterwards. We've seen countless cases of a company hiring often a, a black woman to be the diversity and inclusion director, and then 
than the company not being able to instigate all the policies that they're recommending, right? Because diversity inclusion comes from day one. It comes from the top down. The CEOs and the C-suite has to embrace it and say, this is a commitment. It's very hard to change company culture once it's set. So I think one of the biggest problems is you can't just hire to fix this problem. You often see a lot of times the black and brown hires at companies have the diversity and inclusion positions. They don't have the everyday positions. It often becomes a figurehead. And so I think the biggest, well, one of the things to work on is to say, you know what, this is a problem that everyone's a company will think about, but especially the C-suite, we're going to focus on this. And that's how it affects the cultural impact because it's to change a company's culture is not a small task. It's a CEO level problem, right? And this is what I think one of the things we see as a problem. The second is how soon do you do it? There was an article years ago where people were talking about, you know, when do you start thinking about diversity and, and when you do it? And often it was like, oh, you know, get your first five hires and then you can think about diversity. And I'm like, hell no. You have to think about it from day one because if I have a team of five white men, do you think any black or brown person is gonna say, well, I'm gonna feel home there? You have to think about it from day one or a woman, right? Are they gonna feel comfortable in that environment? Are you creating the environment where they feel comfortable? So I think often what companies do is say, I'm gonna think about diversity later. Let me get my team assembled. But your team is your diversity. It starts from day one who your investors are, asking for more diverse investors, who your customers are, and who your initial hires are. It all starts there, right? So that's something really important to think about. Now, how does a diverse team make a difference? There's lots of data. There's a particular point, and I don't remember the article that said this, but that companies that have women co-founders financially perform better. Companies that have diverse team members have better products because they're taking into account different viewpoints. I think there was a, a good example of those faucets that detect your skin and they can turn on the water. And many of those didn't detect dark skin color. It's like, it's like a simple thing like that, something that's extremely simple. And I have spent my time in front of airport bathrooms, waving my hand frantically, wondering why am I not getting any water out? And, and I'm sure some people experienced that. I think the thing to think about is diversity is actually an asset. It will give you a better understanding of the potential customers you have, and it will force you to have different thought processes during the time of building your products so that you can have more creative teams. Usually more minds are better than one, right? And, and there's more creativity from a larger team that's different, right? And often cultural differences, racial differences create a difference that I would say like intellectual diversity doesn't. Even just between genders. My experience as a man is completely different than your experience as a woman. My experience as an Indian is very different than people who are not Indian. And so having those viewpoints in mind, and especially in tech, let's think about like safety, right? Many of these social media products get made and they often don't think about safety. And many of these tech products are made by men. Safety is something that women ex experience as a need for a lot more than men do. I as a man set happy and luckily, I don't have to worry about my safety walking down the street or even online. I'm not worried that someone's gonna threaten me online. But I have I know plenty of women who say very innocuous things or even not innocuous things, so it doesn't matter what they say, that get attacked and often feel threatened. And these teams building these products are not building safety into the products. You want to think about what you're building and your customers are not one customer. There's a funny story in Silicon Valley, which is like basically for the last 10, 20 years, every app was built to replace a mom, right? Give me a ride somewhere. Order me some food, help me clean my house, help me do my laundry, right? And all these teams were founded by white young males. 
and they're replacing the mom. But what about the other products we need, right? What about women needing better OBGYN care? What about people needing to get better healthcare in other places? What about thinking about getting around in a community and being able to have transportation? Things that didn't affect the average white male, right? And so I think it's a really important to think about is not only are the products we're making have to have diverse teams, but the products we're funding and the problems we're choosing to solve have to have diverse teams because that's how we have true social change. You know, I, I know Mark Andreessen wrote an article during the beginning of COVID that was like, it's time to build. And everyone was like, yes, we have to build. But then if all your funding and software goes into the same teams building the same products for the same young white males, you still have the same problem. So it's, it's almost like chicken or the egg, which came first, right? But you have to really think about diverse teams make a difference because they're building diverse products and those diverse products can often have impact. Let's take a look at like something like Spanx, okay? This woman has absolutely crushed this market. How many VCs do you think she went to that turned her idea down? And women often hear, oh, this is not a big enough market. Women are not a big enough market? What the hell? You know, right? It's 50, 51%. You're talking about something very important, which is that obviously this extends far beyond the technological cultures and the technological products. It's also extensive to who gets to fund things and who's in those rooms and what kind of vision do they have of needs and those things. It's a huge, broad kind of infrastructure that needs to be changed in terms of diversity in order for this to truly be equitable and in turn, I would say even profitable and functional. As you were talking, it brought up for me, I I was recently thinking about Twitter and Twitter's kind of ambivalence toward protecting speech on the one hand and on the other hand, responding to speech that incites violence or is bullying or is hateful. I just had the thought, well, you know, what if Twitter had been designed by women or people of color? who had the experience of having vitriol and bullying that most white men don't have online, we would have such different thinking about those fundamental questions, perhaps, that would really have changed kind of the basic infrastructure of these values that are in the product and also the way that people end up using it. I think Twitter is a really good example. I, for years, have wanted to have a viral tweet, you know, one of those 100K, 500K retweets, right? Be like, wow, that's amazing. What would happen? I was so excited about that idea, right? And I went to a party last summer, pre-COVID times. We call that P PC now? I don't know what we call that. I met a young woman and she was one of those people that had an extremely viral tweet and it was about programming. And it was something to do with the Python language and someone had questioned something and she said, no, that's not the way it works. It works like this. And the guy was like, how do you know? And she's like, I actually wrote that code. Like she was one of the people who actually wrote that. So she's like a badass, right? She's amazing. And I was like, wow, that tweet was so badass. It must have been done so well for your career. I, as a male, was so excited at her having what I thought was his success. And she's like, hell no, I almost deleted my Twitter. I had so many men attacking my credentials, attacking my knowledge. And physically, I felt unsafe. When you have a tweet that gets 200, 300, 500,000 people reading it, as a woman, it's just basically hate that gets spewed towards you. And you know, as a man who I think I'm relatively aware, I went from this idea of like a viral tweet is a good thing for realizing, oh my God, for certain people, that's not a good thing. And I didn't think about the safety in that aspect. And I'm someone whose job is to think about these things and I do care about these things a lot. And so I think perspectives, having different viewpoints and building products and especially around safety and access is such an important thing because I have never had to worry about 
me being attacked for espousing an idea or my physical safety or someone even questioning my credentials because I said an idea, which women often have to do, especially in the technology world, especially female programmers, right? And like the word computer means woman. The first computers, what they call computers, were actually women. And they had a manual job of calculating this data. That was actually where the word computer originally stemmed from. And programmers originally were a lot of them were women. And think about Otto Lovelace and other pioneers in the programming world that were women. It's like a deeply revisionist history to even think that women aren't or can be or should be great programmers. They've been that, right? I mean, I think we've all seen, uh, what's that amazing movie about NASA? Hidden Figures? That's a fantastic movie talking about the, the black NASA scientists, females, that literally helped us go to the moon. There's so much bias and so much revisionist history that we forget what the roots of these things are. Well, there is an article that I should thank you for that I'm now going to write, and it's going to start off with the anecdote that I had somebody notice that all of the apps are built to replace the mother. I'm going to call it Silicon Valley's Oedipus Complex. This is a really exciting and interesting idea. I, I have a million questions that I could ask in response to that. I wanted to bring us back to hiring. I feel almost sad asking a basic question after all of these important and interesting things you laid out on the table here. But I should ask, because I have you here as an expert, how have hiring practices in the tech industry evolved over the last decade or so? How have interview questions and even the entire interview process changed? That's a great question. So the good news is unconscious bias is something the hiring community and recruiters and talent development folks think about a lot, right? Let's start with a really simple use case, names, okay? There's a lot of data showing a name like Chad versus Shaniqua does a lot better in hiring processes because of bias. And so what a lot of hiring software is starting to go towards is removing all personally identifying information. You just go to initials. So when you see someone's resume, you don't see their name anymore. That alone is a way of removing that visible bias, right? Or that unconscious bias. Um, and there's a lot more than that. Things like removing profile photos. And in fact, a lot of companies, if your resume has a photo, they will just delete it because they don't want to be accused of discrimination. So I think looking at technology in the case for hiring, which is saying, what can we do to remove bias, right? Another one we often see is hiding the age of education. So, because you can often dictate how someone, how old someone is by when they went to college, right? And ageism we know in tech is a massive problem, right? And so things like basically providing what I would call blind hiring data are, have made leaps and bounds in the last few years, right? To say as a recruiter, when I'm looking through these resumes and profiles, I'm seeing the value of the persons based on what they've done, not who they are. Right. And we have a long ways to go in that. Okay. And there's still signals that people have to pull out of that data, unfortunately, to, to continue to create bias. But there is lots of steps people are doing to kind of reduce unconscious bias. Perfect example right now, a lot of hiring is happening through videos. Right. Now, what people don't realize is video is a great way to create bias. Everything from the lighting you have, everything from the um, quality of the, your camera to what's going on in your background, how your room looks in the background, those can all create bias, right? And so what I always recommend to a lot of companies and companies are moving towards it is the first phone screen, especially during COVID, um, should only be done by phone. The first screen should only be done by phone. We're not doing videos to start out with. Again, 
you want to eliminate something that can create bias. Another practice we're seeing, hopefully that's reducing more and more, is the notion of hiring homework, right? And you're the advocate for that. So you'll often see someone, you know, gets to a point in a certain part in the hiring process, unfortunately, sometimes even early in the hiring process, but let's say you're a designer and they say, hey, spend X amount of time and go make a design for this, right? Now, let's look at what kind of bias that creates. One, if you already have a job, do you have the time to do another eight hour process, right? Two, you might be applying for multiple companies. You likely are, right? No one just applies for one company. Are you going to do three to four eight-hour exercises? That's a lot of work. And, and so what ends up happening is the people who have the ability and the time to make those things happen, those homeworks happen, often get ahead in that process. And it's a deeply unfair process, right? So what we advocate a lot for at Higher Club is there should be no unpaid homework, right? We say limit about two hours. If someone can do an exercise in two hours, then that makes sense to do as part of like a, a test or a practice practice. But we all, what we often advocate is hire the person for a short contract, pay them because that really replicates the actual experience of working with them. Okay? And the other big issue is if you're doing this homework process and it is not related to what the company is doing, that's fine. But often what will happen is we get this feedback all the time from our clients is the company asked me to work on something that's directly related to the product, but I did not get paid for that time. Now, in California, that's highly illegal, right? It's actually illegal to do, but it happens all the time. We know it does. So we often advocate for, especially in tech to do, is remove that kind of hurdle of unpaid homework, right? Pay people for that time. Now, you don't have to pay everyone. What I mean is when you feel comfortable at the point where this, look, we'd like to move it forward right, to the next step in the interview process, it actually, and we've done the math, it's actually cheaper to pay someone to do the homework test versus hiring the wrong person. And then the last one is, especially in tech and programming hiring, Google's finally admitted it. What we used to have, like the whiteboarding hiring process, the glib, smart problem, like, hey, I have a jar with marbles, how many marbles are in the jar, estimate, right? What's been proven is that those kinds of gotcha questions do not help in the hiring process. So what we're seeing right now, not every company, but more companies are moving towards the process of eliminating what I would call the whiteboard interview practice, right? The reality is me as a programmer, I've literally never had to whiteboard on command. Only time I have to do that is interview process. And so the interview process does not match the real world working process. And so what companies, I, what I would call ethical hiring, what they're moving towards is having the experience of interviewing match the experience of the actual work they're going to do, right? Like if you ask me to create a linked list as part of a programming practice, in my 20 odd years of development, I've never had to do that for an actual job, right? I've had to do that for interviews, but for an actual job, so a lot of the exercises that you get, like writing fizz buzz and all that kind of stuff, don't often occur in the real day-to-day -day situations. And even with coding interviews, you're seeing now people saying, hey, go ahead and you know, use Google or Stack Overflow to do your research because that's how a real programmer works, right? Like Stack Overflow is my best friend, you know? And so the same tools and technology that you would use in your real life working process, you want to replicate in the interview process because that's what it's really like to work with somebody. And what we're really looking for is how do people solve problems? That's what you're really looking for. Not can they solve this specific problem given this specific kind of tool set.
right? What you're looking for is people who are smart. Now, that being said, you got to be sharp. I always advocate for anyone in the hiring process, be the best at what you want to work on, right? Put in your, as Malcolm Gladwell does, 10,000 hours of practice, right? Like really, really, really be good at what you're doing. And I often say, be really good at one thing. And the reason I say that is it's much better to be known as an expert in one thing rather than being known as a generalist. There's a lot of reasons for that we can get into, but expertise is highly valued in the hiring market. And so one of the things we often advocate is to get over the humps of diversity and equity and inclusion that often happen in these problems is be really, really good. Be so good that they can't ignore you, right? That's the famous thing, right? And so that is an important step that personally you can take. Go do your homework, go study, be the best at this programming language or be the best at designer or be the best at sales, whatever it is, but do that work so you are like sharp, right? And so I think if you combine all those things, we're seeing a general move towards more ethical, hopefully, at least in higher club, we've seen it, higher higher practices. It used to be a few years ago that you could ask for someone's salary history, right? Now, 32 states, including California, have made it illegal to do that. And the reason that was is that often kept women's salaries and other people's salaries lower because companies could, could kind of justify and say, well, you had X salary in the past, you're going to be Y salary now. But if you knew their past salary, then that could deflate the salaries. Now that's illegal. You can't ask for the past salary, which is wonderful, right? So the laws are even starting to catch up on some of these things. I wanted to ask you a question to follow up on your comment about ethical hiring practices and the growth, hopefully, of that that you've been noticing. And one thing that I've been noticing with a lot of interest is that companies in tech seem to be increasingly interested in hiring what I call ethical tech workers, not generalists who have some knowledge of what ethics are, but actual ethical tech workers, people who maybe have a specialty or expertise or an edge on this. And this comes, I think, from what I suspect is an increasing awareness in the tech industry of a tech lash or a backlash by tech workers, critics in the public, government, and a broad range of critics against the perception that tech products and tech culture have brought with them some really significant unintended consequences, which through negligence, I'll call it, are prioritizing profit over good, are carried by arrogance, and that have been very destructive. I'm thinking, for example, about the concern over the 2016 election that many Trace to, at least in part, be the result of unchecked social media ads inciting fake news-based beliefs, or, for example, the disruption of markets and industry that have resulted in putting entire demographics out of work, or, to give another broad example, a culture of sexism in, in the industry. What's your take on ethical tech as a job market or ethics as a form of expertise? Do you see that this job market or the desire for this expertise is growing? And if so, what kinds of people and what kind of skills, what kind of specific expertise and what kind of background should someone wishing to get hired for one of these jobs have? So the vast majority of computer science programs don't teach ethics. And I think while there is a, a tech lash, as you call it, happening, I don't know if in actual practice it's wide enough yet. Like we saw like some Google workers talking about some of the practices that Google was doing. Um, Palantir was another one. 
um, Amazon and Microsoft, you know, working with ICE, ICE and other things and the individual employees of the companies rising up, which often is a, it's a wonderful thing, a beautiful thing, but they did face a lot of backlash in themselves, right? People getting fired, people getting, you know, unfortunately, uh, quote unquote, black, blacklisted. Um, and I think often there's a lot of news around these things, but there's still a lot of work to do, right? There's continue to be lots of products like Facebook or Uber or Palantir or Amazon that have terrible, terrible ethical practices that are growing at this time, right? They're making more and more money by exploiting workers, right? That is a thing that continues to happen or invest in technology that can be used to disenfranchise people like with the facial recognition. If, if I was someone that wanted to work at the intersection of these things, of like I care about technology, but I want technology to do good. Um, I think there's a lot of companies that are having what I uh, or are called trust and safety departments. Twitter has one, Facebook has one. Those are really interesting things. And those are a mix of skills between sociology, research, user experience testing, design, and technology itself, right? Because how do you create a safe platform, right? Even things like blocking can be used to create negative impacts, right? Even things like reporting a profile as a negative profile can be used by other bad actors to brigade people. And so these are not simple problems to solve. And these systems often have effects at large scales that you don't see at small scales. Right. So while you might build a system that works for a hundred people or a thousand people, it falls apart at 10 million people. Right. And, and so these are these things that often require on the ground experience, but I think what really this ties into is the skills that we're working to is nonviolent communication, active listening and empathy. Because when you embrace those skills, what you're really doing is being able to see where the problems are. What happens is the reason we get to these points is somebody didn't listen to somebody, right? Early on in Uber's lifetime, someone said, hey, wait a minute, you're paying workers a very small amount. And someone said, I don't care, right? Someone didn't listen, right? And if you want to position yourself in a place where you can work on the intersection of these problems is you have to be an incredible listener. You have to be able to see patterns of what people who might not sound or look like you in any way were possible and might even have, you know, a lot of noise in that signal and be able to capture that. And that's something that a skill set I think is a very tough skill set, right? It's, it's a mix of, is it a user experience designer? I don't know. Is it, is it a you know, what, quote unquote white hat uh, you know, hacker? I don't really know. But I, but I think what it is, is there's a lot of, social understanding in that and what's great about that is you know what that's not something that is like hard to necessarily learn but also the hard part of this is that job market isn't the biggest yet right it is it is getting bigger like you know facebook has an entire team on this content generation these are horrible horrible jobs what they have to do is view videos uploaded to facebook and make sure they pass uh, the issues that the automated systems don't catch now these videos are things like people being murdered, people committing suicide, child porn. These are awful things to have to add in and watch. And often the people working in these content moderation fields um, have really bad PTSD, 
right? It's a very serious, terrible job to have, but someone, it is something that humans, unfortunately, are still somewhat better at machines. That is content moderation, trust and safety, and kind of systemic or systems design are things that a lot of companies are thinking about right now, right? Um, Twitter is a good example. Facebook is a good example, especially stuff around the election um, and fake news. These are things that a lot of companies are thinking about. So that is an area I couldn't, you know, you should invest in. And I definitely see it growing 100%. I will say that I don't think it's as broad as a market yet as it could be, which is sad because I think it should be a very wide market. Like most often companies hire trust and safety departments when they're already at 1 million plus users, right? And unfortunately, you have to start long before that, right? To, to kind of really, again, like to change company culture or change product culture, you have to think about trust and safety from the beginning. Community management falls under that as well, right? So I think what we can do is, as both uh, consumers and as people, as tech workers, is to ask the companies to think about these things sooner, right? To think about it from day one rather than when you're already at a million people. I want to shift gears here and ask you a, a few questions about our current moment because I think it would be hard to not talk about how this pandemic is having and already has had such a severe impact on the job market. What is happening on the ground? And because our uh, listener base is very heavily weighted toward college students, particularly those who might be graduating into this job market, how can that body of job seekers navigate finding and getting a job? One of my jobs as a coach is to challenge people and sometimes say harsh truths. And the reality is it is tough right now. There is no way of sugarcoating it, right? We have the highest amount of unemployment the U.S. has ever had, I think higher than the Great Recession and the Great Depression. And because of the changing nature of the retail job market, what was once available to a certain skill set is often not available, right? The retail is being decimated as well. It's not like this is only impacting all markets the same. And unfortunately for students, a lot of the internship process that used to happen by meeting people at career fairs and all these things have vastly changed and moved online. There is a lot of difficult things to get over in that world. And I, and I don't want to sugarcoat it, right? It is hard. Um, my daughter is in college and she's actually taking a gap year, right? And I actually think that is not a bad option right now, right? Um, to wait it out and real world experience is a teacher that you can always learn from. If you have the ability to focus on real world kind of experience, that can be incredible. I wish I had a better answer to this question because unfortunately it is really, really tough. And as millennials as known for a while, the job markets for you in general have been very, very tough for the last five, 10 years, right? We see a lot of consolidation in the job market and people wanting to hire seniors versus juniors. What's great, though, is with the advents of platforms like TikTok and YouTube and Substack, you are able to be a creator. And in fact, the more unique creator you are, the more recognition you might even get. No one's stopping you from creating your own thing, right, and trying out your own ideas. So while in the past, the 
typical college student market was, let me get an apprenticeship or internship with a job. Let me learn on the job what's happening. For, unfortunately, for a lot of people, that's not going to be an option sometimes, right? And not because we, they don't want to do it. It's just that the companies aren't hiring as much, right? They don't have the money themselves, right? And so doing your own work, whether it's figuring out whether you want to be a better writer, a better programmer, a better designer, working on your own products, solving the problems that you care about, if you have the ability to do that, is super important. A lot of people are moving back home, right? I know adults moving back home with their family, right? And, and unfortunately, there is a reality because this is something we've never experienced before. And I wish if I had answers on how to, how to solve this, I would probably be a, a lot better off or wealthier than I am. The pandemic does have a severe impact on the job market. But what's great right now is the initial things that were happening in March, February, and May where the fear and the kind of like, holy crap, the world is ending kind of feeling has started to subside and we're getting into more of a rhythm. And I think it's going to take a couple more months where people are, are able, because think about it this way, how do you hire remotely? And how do you hire an intern remotely? Do companies even know how to do that? They're still figuring that out. They've been spending the last few months figuring it out, but they're still not sure, right? How do you have a job fair remotely? How do you meet candidates remotely, right? So these are problems that not only are the students having, but the companies are having, which is how do I make sure my hiring pipeline is going to be filled with people that I want to bring into the company? I want to pick up on one of the things you just said, which is how do we hire remotely? And I think that one of the patterns or trends that we can pick up since February is the increasing turn to remote work and remote workers. What about the future of work? in the context of technologies that are enabling remote work and remote workers, do you see this impacting hiring? And, and do you see it impacting the tech industry itself? Certain industries have done terrible since COVID hit, right? Retail, restaurants, hospitality. If you are in that market, I would strongly ask you to question that and see if you can move to another market. But products like Zoom and uh, technical work and programming work and design work, which can be done remotely or sales work or marketing work, is not necessarily seeing as much of an impact comparatively. It's obviously seeing an impact, but it's not seeing as much of an impact. And certain industries are not going to be good industries to go into. Like airlines are a perfect example, right? Like travel is a perfect example. In America, sadly, people are having to travel less, right? For lots of reasons. And so being flexible. I think is something is a great skill to have right now as a, as any worker, but especially as students, if you went to school for hospitality, if you went to school for retail management, if you went to school for things that require real life in, in, uh, interactions, you might have to be flexible and think about other things, right? Healthcare though is doing incredible, right? It's a fantastic time to be in healthcare, scary time, but a fantastic time, right? Development and science still doing relatively pretty okay, right? As far as remote work goes, sadly, remote work is only enabled for a certain subset of the population, right? Basically, knowledge workers, right? If you cook, if you're a chef, remote work is, is vastly different for you. It's possible at all, right? If you're an Uber driver or if you, you know, work in a hospital or, or any other what we call essential workers, remote work is a very different thing for you. But for the people who can take advantage of remote work, um, the amazing thing is now you can work for any company. The companies are starting to realize they can hire from anywhere 
and so I just had uh, one of our clients get a job in at a New York company today, and uh, she's in the Bay, right? And she has no plans to move to New York, right? And and so the markets you can be in is you can go to the hot markets. You can start demanding salaries of a hotter market and go, you don't have to say my town or where I'm only at is going to give you my options, right? And so that's a fantastic workers. Now, some companies are obviously having salary adjustments for location, which is their right to do and it makes financial sense why they're doing it. But it still gives you, in some ways, a widening of the market. Absolutely. And to pick up on that too, I think that we can say something very important here about how that will change things. Because you don't necessarily have to be in San Francisco to have a Silicon Valley job. You could do that from the Midwest or the South or the Middle East. And I think one other thing to consider or to think about is that this will not only change how and who people hire, but it will also, I think, add another dimension of diversity and inclusion to this. If you are having somebody from the South suddenly working in your tech company or the Middle East or, uh, or at any number of places, that might actually end up impacting not only who, who they hire because they can hire from everywhere, but what kinds of thoughts go into the creation and ideation of the products that end up being used by a number of us. Yeah, no, that, that's definitely true. I think remote work democratizes a lot of things, right? It democratizes access in a lot of ways. The downside of that is also makes competition a lot higher because now companies can say, well, I can hire from anywhere. You can work from anywhere, but I can hire from anywhere. But there is a, a you know, two-edged uh, sword on that. You know, this is a complicated time. And, and I wish I had like key answers to say, look, if you do X, Y, and Z, you know, you'll find success. But the reality is a lot of us are still figuring this out, right? Companies are still figuring it out. People who are in hiring industries are still figuring this out. And, and we don't all 100% know. What I do know is that recruiters and hiring managers are absolutely up to their ears in work. We've always thought about, you know, I have this one main job, right? And that's my job and that's my identity and all this stuff is tied into that. With remote work, I actually foresee some people moving... I, I wouldn't advocate for a completely independent career market because I think there's a, there's a lot of unfairity, unfairness with the way American um, society works in healthcare. But there's nothing that's stopping you from having two jobs if you can manage them, right? Um, and two remote jobs are very easy to manage versus one in-person job, right? And I'm seeing a lot of people look at that option. I'm now a professor and a podcaster. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I, I think... You have to find the opportunity in the adversity, right? Yes, this is a time when hiring is much more competitive than it's ever been, and companies can choose to hire much easier, but you can also work wherever you want to work, and you can work more than company if you, one company if you want, as long as you know, your contract and all that allows it. Um, and I think companies are going to gradually open up to that, right? Is if they can hire experts short-term that do faster and better work than someone else who's doing long-term, that could be a positive thing. And, and it's almost like the outsourcing that we were seeing to other countries is now happening from Silicon Valley to other states. And what about Silicon Valley? Do you, I mean, you're in Silicon Valley. Do you think that people who live in Silicon Valley right now and are there for the high-paying tech job, for example... Or there because the in-person networks that they are able to access because they live there? You think that they'll be leaving Silicon Valley? 
there's a big discussion about this, right? Does Silicon Valley still have merit for the location? In some ways, that is true, right? It, it does matter who you know, and, and, and being in one place can do that. But with networks like Twitter and Hire Club and other you know, social media, it doesn't matter where you are. And a lot of people are living living Silicon Valley. I'm considering living Silicon Valley. I've been in San Francisco 17 years. And why am I paying the rent I'm paying when I can't go down the street anymore and go to the restaurant that I used to love, right? Because it's not safe, right? And financially, people are starting to realize that the communities we were creating in Silicon Valley don't make a lot of sense. People were already starting to realize that before COVID, by the way. I've had about 40 friends leave San Francisco in the last two years. And this, some of it was long before COVID, right? Because the financial model of, even though you had a high paying salary here, the cost of living was so high, it didn't make sense. And so we are seeing people start to create intentional communities, people moving to places like Tahoe, or, or Austin, obviously that's been happening for a while, but even smaller American towns like Placer Valley. San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo could be a good example where they can do remote work and, and still command a salary that affords them a lifestyle that they want. Mm-hmm. Um, Not San Luis Obispo. <laughs> yeah, sure, that, that can be an issue. And so I think we're gonna see more remote hubs. Right? It's gonna be a hub and spoke model, right? With, with, with a, lot, a lot of what airlines do, right? The hub might be San Francisco, but there's a spoke out to Tahoe, there's a spoke out to Placer Valley, there's a spoke out to Reading, a spoke out to Sacramento. And so we're going to be seeing much more of that. And, and they're going to things like Emerson, Indiana, and other places you know, in the Midwest. We're going to see a lot more of that happening because people don't want to be part of a rat race anymore, right? Especially like, I can't enjoy the city like I used to. So why am I paying this absurd rent, you know? I want to end by asking you a few questions that might be of particular interest and urgency to a broad base of our listeners, which is that demographic of college students who are facing the prospect of looking for their first full-time job, many of whom are hoping to go into tech. What would you say is the biggest mistake people make when looking for a job in the tech industry? Don't do it alone. Your job search does not have to be alone. Whether you have friends or a mentor or a coach, you do not have to do this alone. It's probably one of the things I repeat the most. I think often people, especially students, think they have to do this alone. You do not have to do this alone. You can have a whole team of people working with you. That is one of the biggest mistakes people make. And I think when you think about skills that people should have, the other big mistake is people don't focus on writing enough. We are in an age of remote work. Writing is your primary Thank you very much for giving me cause to deliver my weekly PSA to take your writing classes seriously. 100%. 100%. (laughs) Literary scholar for the win. Yeah, no, for sure. I I think I'm a writer myself. And and I think writing, ability to put incredible thoughts together and express your ideas in this time of market is even much more important than it ever was. So take writing classes, continue to take writing classes. The other one I would take is you can still take public speaking classes, right? How you carry yourself, how you communicate with others is such an important thing right now because communication has vastly changed. We're only doing communication through video or audio now. So like how you hold yourself up, your dictation, your your vocabulary, all those things matter so much now um, that, that we used to take for granted because we had the in-person kind of like, you know, uh, smooth if that would happen, right? And so writing, public speaking, you know, all sorts of things that help you communicate better 
our fantastic skills to focus on. The other one I would say is even if, and I always say this, even if you're not goals to be a developer, having some sort of technical skills, even if you take a few classes on HTML, CSS can be so helpful because I think becoming a good problem solver, which often programming helps you do, right? Programming office is a logic exercise, not a math exercise all the time. It's a logic exercise. It's a th critical thinking exercise. Those critical thinking and logic problem skills are important in any role, right? And so I would often argue if you can focus on those kinds of problems, that will make you better at any role, right? If you can you know, create your own blog and start writing content or create your own photos or Instagram feed, the, 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 the last skill I think is super important is go out there and create. Don't stop creating. It's okay if it sucks at first. It's supposed to suck. Get comfortable sucking at something because that's how you get good at it. I think often, especially with young people um, or when you're a beginner or something, you see yourself not being as good as you want to see and you want to have a tendency to either downplay or want to give up, right? But it's good that you're not good. That's how you get good, right? And so, so I think having the ability to not judge yourself for not being an expert and to kind of embrace your progression and doing the practice and doing the daily rituals of creating something, whatever it is, whether it's writing or code or design or sales pitches, whatever, practice and be okay at not being good. Mistakes are wonderful. One last question. And here I want to specifically link your work and hiring broadly to both ethics and technology. How can practices of hiring in the tech industry bring about a more pronounced and functional ethical culture and products that better serve human values? And how can we as tech thinkers, leaders, and practitioners who care about and work in tech do better to help serve the good? Easy, last, light question. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I think for a lot of leaders, now is the time for listening. Listen to the Black community. Listen to women. Listen to people of color. It takes courses and classes on anti-racism. Take courses on bias um, and gender studies. Teach classes on bias and gender studies, right? Yes, if, 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 that's, if that's your skill set, 100% do that. But I think often we think in the industry that I have to go lead something, that leadership is the answer. But in, I think, at times of crisis when we see a lot of people suffering and a lot of people not, one of the best things you can do is listen. And I would rather see leaders spend more time listening right now and less time talking. Thank you, Kenton. Thank you.